This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Howdy folks, Carl Jordan here, Pioneer Field Agronomist in Northwest Indiana. Uh, welcome to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. I am joined as always by my colleague and co-host, Brian Schrader from the Northeast side of the state. How are you today, Brian? Very good, Carl. Glad to be here. Good deal. Well, uh, we are fortunate enough to uh, pay off our tees from earlier this summer visiting with uh, who was once a newly minted uh, state extension specialist in uh, Dr. Dan Quinn of Purdue University. Uh, today, he doesn't quite have that same glow, that that sheen, you know, doesn't have that new car smell, if you will. So uh, Dan is willing to join us to visit about what uh, him and his uh, research program learned from the 2022 growing season. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of a preview of what 2023 crop trials may look like. Um, we had a chance to visit just briefly before hitting the recording here today, and we're uh, Brian and I are awfully excited to see what's coming out of Dan's program, and I think you all will too. So, Dan, with that, uh, welcome to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast, and thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Carl and Brian. You know, I've a little war, you know, been through my first round of of research this past year, so like you said, not as much as a glow, maybe a little more grown more gray hairs, uh, a little more run down, but you know, that's, that's, that's all right. I think we had a good year this past year. So. Absolutely. Married man since the last podcast recording. I also, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got a, we have a Mrs. Dr. Quinn in the, in the household now. Yep. Yep. And we just got back from our, our honeymoon here a week or two ago. Um, so it was got a little bit of a, a little bit of a tame now. So, so happy to get back after it. So. <laughs> Good deal. Well, Dan, thanks again for visiting with us. It was uh, uh, quite ironic. I was driving back from the west side of town. We drop our uh, son off at preschool over there west of campus. And on my transit back, uh, Bob Nielsen was crossing the same bridge as me. So I saw the corn guy license plate, the F-150. Yep. And here I was driving back to the office to talk with you. So not sure what, what omen that may be, but uh, yep. definitely a, a handing off of things here in the conversation. So Dan, with that 2022 unique growing season uh that can pose some challenges when it comes to what you set out before planting for trial design and what you hope to learn how did the 2022 uh growing environment impact the the results that that you guys were hoping to extract from your research program this year yeah i think uh, you know it was kind of an interesting year um you know you look back at where we started we we didn't get planted as, as early as what we'd hoped. Uh, you know, some folks, you kind of had a week or two windows where you could sneak stuff in. You know, that's always kind of challenging enough for us on the research side. Um, but so we're a little bit behind um, in terms of, of getting the trials in. Um, and but we got them in, you know, I think they came up well and, and did really well off the bat because it got about 90 degrees, I think, after uh, we got planted there at the end of May. Um, but it got really dry. Uh, I'm sure a lot of folks in the in the state of Indiana know that. Um, I know here on campus we had about 1.2 inches of rain in the month of June, and and south of campus about 0.8 inches <laughs> in the month of June. So very very dry. Um, but I think in terms of overall the yields coming of our trials were were excellent. Um, even though it was dry to start the year, um, just made up a lot of yield on the back end of the season uh, with the rainfall. You know, August September. 
Um, we had we had trials pushing 300 bushel in, in southern Indiana, which is you know was some of the highest yields we'd seen at those farms. So uh, it was pretty shocking. You know, I think at the beginning of the year we were getting a little concerned just with with how dry it was in the month of June. Um, but I think it we made up for it. Um, we had some really good results, really good yields on a lot of our trials, and it, it really made up for it on the on the back end of the season. But I think some of the weather uh, dictated some of our results too. But I think that was that was good to see. So. Absolutely. I, I know when Brian and I we were down at the uh, Indiana Certified Crop Advisor Conference that uh, you know we put on every every December. Had the opportunity to listen to uh, one of your talks, and I would assume it was one of your highlights, given that you decided to highlight it at that conference. But we were talking about your uh, your your high yield uh, corn management work that was a, a coordinated effort, not just trials in the state of Indiana, but also with folks that you'd worked with. Uh, in your previous lives in uh, the states of Michigan and Kentucky, would you be willing to uh, give the folks on the other side of these microphones an idea of kind of what the construct of that trial was and what you felt you learned from it? Yeah, so that 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 trial was a multi-state trial. It was kind of my my big trial uh, this past year. I, I really started it kind of right when I started at Purdue. Um, you know, intensive management high yield studies aren't new. They've been done time and time again, but we kind of wanted to to take a you know an expansive approach, but even a little more detailed approach in terms of of crop physiology um, and looking at corn you know grain fill and and stuff like that. But um, we we expand this trial. We had a total of six fields um, across three states. Um, and what's unique about this study too, and and we're very fortunate here at Purdue to be able to do you know a combination of small plot and field scale trials. Um, so. You know, a lot of universities, it's just small plot, you know, and that's right. it. Um, we like doing the combination of the both, you know, small plot, you know, you can get more treatments, a little more intensive uh, data management or data collection. But the field scale trials, I mean, that's applicable to, to what the farmers are using, right? We're using, you know, haggy sprayers to put our stuff on. We're using, you know, 12 row planters and, you know, calibrated yield monitors to get our yield data and, and you know, there's a lot of benefits to that too. So having the combination of the both and capturing a lot of different environments, a lot of different latitudes and different soil types, you know, there's so many products marketed. There's so many folks that are, you know, how do I get 300 bushel corn, right? How do I keep pushing? You know, yield is, you know, that's something I think about all the time. How do we keep pushing the envelope? I'm sure that's what you guys think about all the time. It's what farmers think about all the time. They're always trying to find that, that next leg up uh, in terms of management. Um, so we want to take the approach of, okay, let's evaluate some of these these you know you know pretty common you know commonly marketed you know targeted management practices that farmers are using and and let's try and pinpoint is there there's some that are really driving the yield responses we're seeing is there some that are consistent across all these different environments um, and stuff like that so. Um, yeah, it was a pretty pretty expansive research trial, but uh, we were very happy with it. Um, had a had a lot of really good results out of it. Um, just kind of jumping into to some of the results, you know, you know, this study was set up where we kind of had a control treatment, you know, typical control. You always have to have control and research where we just kind of took our normal seeding rate, normal for nitrogen fertilizer management, and that was the baseline, right? And so um, the type of products we're we're building so we evaluate all these products by themselves and then we look at them you know the kitchen sink right so they're 
combined all together. Um, so we looked at Zyway fungicide, which is you know pretty pretty popular new fungicide. It's been on the market a few years now. So you know some of that that starter fungicides um, mm -hmm. kind of you know gotten a lot of popularity recently. A lot of questions on those. Um, we looked at you know increases in seeding rate because you know every time you think about pushing yields. Folks always want to look at increasing the seeding rate a little bit and pushing the envelope a little bit. Then we look at sulfur. Sulfur is always a hot topic in terms of questions I get in the spring where guys are calling me, what the, you know, what is going on in my cornfield? It's majority uh -huh. is, is sulfur. It's pretty, pretty surprising since I moved here to, to Indiana, just how prevalent sulfur deficiency is across the state. And where we're seeing it in fields that have three, four percent organic matter, where areas where you, know, you wouldn't think would have sulfur deficiency, but it is showing up time and time again. Um, so that was a, a big aspect. We look at nitrogen timing. So not just you know your normal side dress where you do two by two starter coming back at V5, and then you know we wanted to look at what about multiple in season and applications. A lot of a lot of folks have high clearance sprayers and wide drops and and those things. So so looking at that, you know, foliar micronutrients. You know, I think mm -hmm. about you know, the big ones I always get asked about are zinc, manganese, and boron. So we, yep. we kind of targeted those and you know fun, fungicides as well. So foliar fungicides, R1 fungicides. You know that is you know pretty much a commonplace uh, for a lot of farmers, especially you think about Northwest Indiana, the Absolutely. tar spot and, and what goes on there. I mean, how detrimental that can be. Um, so looking at, you know, all those different suites of products by themselves, but then, okay, what if we, we put them all together um, as well? And, and kind of a unique aspect of this project too was, you know, I, I'm really in tune to kind of paying attention to the the back end of the season. We're looking at kernel weight and grain filtration. I think, you know, that's something that, you know, has been paying attention to, but maybe not as much as, you know, the, the front end of the season. I think because there's a lot of yield left to be made. I think you look at this growing season this past year, you know, a lot of farmers that I talked to said, ah, my, my corn's not going to do that well. It was dry early, but then the back end of the season, they're, you know, I was getting calls going, what the heck, where did this yield come from? And I uh -huh. really think it's due to that, you know, that back end of the season, that kernel weight, that grain fill. And you, and you think about some of these products, but especially the fungicides, you know, the ability to limit foliar disease and, and maybe push that stay green potential, you know, push that plant health on the back end of the season. We saw it. Um, and I know you all probably showed, I showed those pictures, side-by-side -side pictures in terms of, you know, differences in plant health or stay green potential where we had those fungicide applications was, you know, we were pretty blown away just looking at the, the differences and the, you know, the senescence timings and all that. So, you know, under, you know, the big part of what I do is, okay, we see a yield increase. Well, where the heck is that yield increase coming from, right? Is right. it coming from, you know, better plant stand? Is it coming from, you know, kernel weight? Is it coming from kernel number, um, ear size? You know, where where is that yield coming from? So we can help understand it a lot better. And I think, you know, with some of the data showing these fungicides can extend that that grain fill duration a little bit um, and, and push that kernel weight, push some of that kernel number. Um, as well, I think, you know, we had pretty consistent uh, fungicide responses uh, this past year, um, even from the, the starter fungicide as well, you know, southeast Indiana, those starter fungicides can really help push back, you know, particularly gray leaf spot and northern corn leaf blade. I don't think they're labeled for tar spot or, 
or right. some or southern rust but you know gray leaf spot northern corn leaf blight it, it you know it, it did help even disease ratings at r5 we we're seeing lower disease even with that fungicide through the planter so <clears throat> excuse me so that that was pretty pretty interesting we had yield increases um you know from the controlled in the intensive we had a couple sites where we got 30 40 bushel responses um so that that really stood out to us um as well we, we kind of you you get frustrating sometimes when you do research but it's part of it where you do all these different things and you see absolutely nothing right um, right so <laughs> seeing some some differences is is always exciting uh, for us but you know a lot of different products that kind of gives you an overview of the different products different treatments that we examined and we did this you know across you know three states right so six different fields um used to we're primarily uh, pioneer hybrids, um, those 100 day, 10 day hybrids, uh, a little bit shorter as we moved up to into Michigan, um, but but good re yield responses um, from a lot of our studies. A lot of our studies, you know, 230 to 280 bushels per acre, um, right. which is good to see. Um, I think the big ones were the fungicide. We had sulfur responses as well. We had um, late season nitrogen applications too, and and you'd mentioned, you know the environmental um, aspects to um, late season nitrogen applications uh, for me are, are very environmentally dependent a lot of times when we see the see the yield responses you know typically you think you know if i put cydrus in on and get six inches of rain right i'm probably lost a bunch but those late season end applications can really recover a lot of yield it's it's pretty fascinating how much yield you can actually save uh, with those those applications later in the mm -hmm. season all the way from v12 pushing r1 um but i think we saw kind of on the the opposite end of the spectrum where it was so dry in the month of june we had side dress nitrogen you know 180 200 pounds of nitrogen on at, at side dress and I remember two weeks later seeing nitrogen deficiencies in, in the plots and going, what in the world is going on? And, you know, screwing, I screwed this up, you know. This yeah, is, that's where your mind goes first. Uh, yeah, what what uh, applicator mistake did I make yeah, here? Yep. Um, but then we started seeing it pop up in other studies, other researchers were seeing it. I had farmers calling me saying, hey, what, why the heck do I have nitrogen deficiency? Um, but it was just so dry and that nitrogen was just sitting there. Um, you see it in potassium too, right? Where it gets mm -hmm. so dry and you see potassium deficiency show up. You have to have that moisture for that uptake. Um, and we just didn't have it at that point in time in June, but those late season end applications, we put them on and got, you know, rainfall pretty quickly after them and it just boosted that end uptake. So um, that's part of why we do these trials, you know, over multiple years to get those different environmental conditions. But I think that we had a couple sites with, with pretty large responses to late season nitrogen. And I think it was you know, really dictated by the, the dry conditions we saw at, at Cydress. Yeah. So Dan, as, as you're kind of laying out all of those different variables that you all were evaluating, you kind of called them collectively the kitchen sink approach. And yeah. I know the, the growers that Brian and I work with, for those that are listening, there may be some that say, I don't do any of that. And then there's some that are saying, I do all that and, you know, whatever their their new favorite flavor is that they've been testing out. And over time, you know, trying to find the, the sweet spot of combinations. Yep. Uh, a lot of folks are asking which one is pulling, you know, pulling its weight the most. 
And as you said, some years it's what what you're going to expect may not actually be the result based on what Mother Nature is providing. So like you were talking about the late season end, um, I'm curious as, as you were looking through all those different uh, combinations of of treatments, was there one that stuck out to you that surprised you uh, unanticipated that uh, really kind of floated to the top um, or the other way disappointed you? You know, you really hang your hat on this practice and it actually didn't didn't show up at the end of the year. Yeah, I think, you know, the most consistent one across the board was R1 fungicide. Um, I think we, you know, that wasn't too surprising for us. Um, I think the surprising aspect was, um, you know, disease wasn't as, you know, prevalent this year because of how June, dry it was in June, especially tar spot. But um, all of our sites did have disease. I think it had the the often forgotten about diseases, you know, gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf plate. Um, we did have those. They came in a little bit later, but... Right. The R1, even applying at R1, um, is, and that's typically our most consistent timing, R1, R2 in there, and just taking disease ratings at R5, and just the level of difference in, in disease, even in, for that that you know period of time uh, was was pretty you know stark for us so i think that really drove a lot of our yield responses that was that was the most consistent across the board i would say all of our locations in indiana had uh, a significant yield increase from from the fungicide application um, the sulfur application too we did have yield responses from that um, but then again you know we just see sulfur deficiencies, you know, pop up so much across the state. And, you know, you look at some of the work, you know, Bob Nielsen has been doing for, you know, five to seven years on sulfur. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty interesting just to see the levels of sulfur deficiencies that do show up really across the entire state and the level of sulfur responses that we, we do see. Um, so I think sulfur is, is really important, uh, especially you move up to like northwest Indiana, those sandier soils, low organic right. matter. I mean, you will see 20, 30 bushel responses uh, from sulfur in those locations. So I think that's that's really important. Um, the late season nitrogen probably was the most surprising for us. Um, but we kind of talked about really, really why that was. And, and we'll see next year. I'm sure the weather will be completely different and, and how things change. Um, probably the, the biggest one that, you know, we didn't see a response from at all across all of the fields was the seeding rate. Um, you know, we we are on typically our recommendations are like 30 to 32,000 seeds per acre, pretty consistent in a lot of across a lot of environments. And, you know, we just looked at going up about 20%. So from 30 to 36 or 32 to 38, you know, in those high yield environments, you know, a lot of folks like to right. push the push those populations. And we even had an irrigated site down in Kentucky um, where we tried to push the, the populations too. And we just didn't see a you know, the response at all. I think um, one kind of the fascinating things I've found with the hybrids nowadays is, you know, they, they tolerate high seeding rates very well. Um, and, and can yield well at those high seeding rates, but they tolerate seeding rates at low too. Um, they do a really good job at you know, tolerating those lower seeding rates too. And and something that stood out to us, I remember riding in the combine um, in southeast Indiana, um, 36,000 seeds per acre, which isn't crazy um, in terms mm -hmm. of, of a seeding rate, but the lodging um, differences, um, even at yeah. that seeding rate. Uh, I remember riding in the combine, they had a pretty strong, like stark windstorm that rolled through and, you know, riding in the combine going, ah, taking notes, lodging. Okay, what is that seeding rate? Oh, 36,000. Oh, lodging, mm -hmm. 
hope 36 out and you know it really stood out to us so i think that that had something to do with it but um, just the ability of those hybrids even at you know the uh, 30,000 seeds per acre, 32,000, just how well they perform even at that lower seeding rate um, compared to those higher seeding rates. And I think that's that's something that, that we found kind of time and time again uh, when it comes to seeding rates um, as well. Um, so that, and we, you know, the, the other thing that really stood out to me is kind of my first year working with a product like Zyway um, and some of these, you know, I've worked with other products from other companies, these starter fungicides, just the ability of that starter fungicide to just kind of have some efficacy for, for a long period of time. Um, right. And we saw yield responses in, in southeast Indiana. Um, I know uh, Darcy Telenko um, saw re yield responses from it in northeast Indiana. We were really close and, you know, statistical aspect to see it in northeast Indiana in our trials. We saw improved kernel number with these products. Um, so and some kernel weight differences with these products. So I thought that was even applying it at the starter. Uh, you know, period and and seeing lower foliar disease at R5 from that. Not as not near as good as, you know, the R1 fungicides. Those are still uh, your best bet at controlling that disease from a foliar aspect, but still seeing some level of disease control activity all the way uh, to R5, particularly on gray leaf spot and other current leaf blight in southern Indiana really, really stood out to us um, as well. So, um, didn't see much from the the fuller micronutrients. Uh, we're still um, analyzing a lot of our tissue tests. I think we just didn't have hardly any uh, micronutrient deficiencies. Um, but we'll sure. we'll keep doing that uh, this next year um, as well. So, yeah, you know, you kind of touched on this. You know, for a lot of farmers, you know, the kitchen sink is is often difficult because of how expensive it is. Uh, for us, we looked at economics, and you know, doing all of those practices, you're going to add about a hundred dollars per acre more. Uh, so you, you need a lot of yield uh, for that to pay. We had a couple sites where it did pay because uh, we got 30, 40 bushel responses from it, but we had some sites where we got 10 bushel or you know five bushel um, and that's not going to pay uh, for, for no, no. even at great yeah even with great grain prices yeah, i mean it would makes it easier that yeah that burden that threshold's lower but but to your point yeah absolutely that's the other aspect you know we have good grain prices um, right now i think we looked at about six dollars and fifty cents you know corn price um so it's you know i kind of push this you know uh, message of you know understanding what your yield limiting factors are in your field because everyone has as you all both know every field is different every farm is different every you know what you have issues in your field is completely different than what your neighbor has um, taking the time using the technology scouting you know we have so much technology nowadays um, so much imagery so much mapping you know using that data and figuring out okay where in my fields Am I not yielding as good as I should have? You know, what went wrong in this year? Was it disease? Was it nutrient deficiencies? Was it, did I have sulfur deficiencies? Did I have, you know, was my populations off? Did I have lodging? You know, that's why it's so important. Uh, we try to try to get guys to understand, like, use your data and pinpoint, you know, those areas of the fields that just aren't doing up to the point of what they should be. And how do we address that, right? So. Um, like in Northwest Indiana, if you have a history of tar spot and tar spot is a problem, you better be on top of it in terms of fungicide applications um, and, and taking care of it or selecting the right hybrids, right? There's a lot of hybrid differences. Um, do I need to change my hybrid that I use? Um, so, you know, understanding everybody's different, 
understanding what are your issues on your own farm and doing what you can to target those instead of just I'm going to apply everything under the sun as insurance and well it may pay off one year but then the next year you lost fifty dollars per acre because you did that so um, it's challenging because it's environmental I wish we had a a crystal ball, right? I wouldn't need this mm -hmm. job if I had a crystal ball and I could predict the weather. Um, agronomy would be so much easier if we knew how to <laughs> the weather. But um, I think with the tools we have, the data we have, just you know, the yield history, the you know, nobody knows their fields and environments better than the farmers. Um, so you know, working with the agronomist and stuff to pinpoint, you know, how do we get better? I think that's that's really important. I think that's what we kind of saw coming out of this study is that you know, there's certain inputs that are fairly consistent, some that aren't. You know, hey, instead of just doing 100 bucks more per acre, hey, let's let's try and pinpoint a couple that that we know are going to work in that specific environment that we need. That's when we see the yield increases and the profitability increases uh, really stand out to us. I think that's where a lot of value comes to the farm gate is where you can help lay out what are those priorities, what are those consistent, you know, returns on that investment. Like you said, the the fungicide acre, that seems to be one that that has grown, I'd say, even over the last five years, Brian, you'd probably say similar sentiments that, you know, we used to get called on a lot more field visits to say, should I spray? Should I not spray? Yep. Now we're getting called from the office say, hey, uh, I can get the plane in, you know, this week or should I delay it? I'm planning on, you know, most of my acres getting applied. Yep. And so it's 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 evolving and it'll just be interesting as you do studies of this nature. You know, what is that next thing that is kind of uh, subjective or we're still understanding or it's not a common practice that will be that common practice in five years? And I think this type of work really, it really reaches the farm gate well because there's lots of folks that are trying this approach but like you said dan maybe they aren't making money by doing it or maybe they are and they've they've been able to kind of i guess flush out what those most yield limiting factors are and those are the approaches to correct them so yeah, yeah exactly and i think you know i, I kind of touched on this too the, the ability of the fungicides you know we kind of took that approach where we looked at the physiological aspect where you know, part of being a grad student my grad student you know collected ears every week after pollination and you know collected kernels you know she had tweezers and you know was very very careful and so we tracked you know that kernel growth rate um, that linear kernel filling period you know where kernels are you know they're accumulating moisture they're determining their size for that period of time but you know we see on the back end of the season if we can extend that grain fill duration a little bit longer um, and we saw this with the fungicides they were able to extend that grain fill duration a little bit longer and it, i think it really stems from controlling the foliar disease when you have a bunch of foliar disease it takes your green leaf area away it starts to you know kind of shut down the photosynthesis of that plant and shut that sure. plant down um, so we saw, you know, pretty consistent. Uh, my grad student did a great job of, of pulling that data this year where, you know, that that linear grain fill period was extended with with these fungicide applications. And and when it was extended, it resulted in, in kernel weight being increased. Um, and we saw across the board, not only consistent yield responses from the fungicides, but consistent kernel weight increases and also some uh, level of kernel number increases as well. So kind of back to where those yield increases are coming from. Um, I think, you know, controlling that disease on the back end of the season and, and timing your fungicide, you can extend that grain fill duration a little bit longer. And that's where that, that yield is coming from. And I think we see that in, in years where we get, you know, pretty good rainfall in the back end of the season where it's a little bit cooler. Um, but if you're 
you know, paying attention. You know, I always talk about you have to manage corn the entire year, right? It's you know, it can't compensate like beans can. It doesn't flower all the time like beans do. Um, kind of, you know, I joke with Sean Castile, our soybean agronomist. You got to kind of hold corn's hand a little bit. Um, get it through the season because it's developing yield all season long um, and even paying attention to it on the back end of the season we saw those kernel weight increases um, show up that were direct result of of increasing yield and I think that that was really really interesting uh, for us to see um, and pinpointing where those yield increases are coming from. Dan, that's one of the interesting things to me, the fungicide, the sulfur, the late season nitrogen, everything that you've talked about this morning really is about keeping the late season plant health and yeah. keep that machine really functioning well. You know, when we're out in the countryside, when Carl and I are out in the countryside, some of the the uh, countryside corn physiologists that we run into talk about that in a perfect world the corn plant should really be green until black layer is that realistic i mean is that really how we should think about uh this late season plant health can we could we in a perfect world if everything went well keep the plant green until black layer is that really what our goal should be with a lot of these things yeah i i think so i mean i'm kind of in my beginning um stages of really diving into that question um, but I know you know some of the really high yielding fields you'll see you know a lot of that photosynthesis on the back end of the season is coming from that top portion of the plant and keeping that top portion of like you said keep that factory running um, and until it starts to taper off you know you're always going to hit black layer um, I, I've always I've heard the notion well maybe we'll push it and we won't hit black layer no you black layer always happens um, you know one you know whether you can push it to the point where you get a, a, a freeze or something like that that's going to really shut down that plant immediately um, but you know i think it's a combination of matching your hybrid maturity matching your management to the environment you are in and getting as much out of that factory as you can and i i think that's really important and we saw that you know with you know the combination of some of the late season nitrogen and the fungicide is that we kept that factory going we kept that plant cleaner in the back end of the season and we were able to you know directly see it you know from our from our data where that extended that grain field duration it tacked on the kernel weight and we had higher yield um, so um, i think i'm really interested on the back end of the season that's something i've, I've focused a lot of my research in is, is really understanding you know that factory how do we keep it going how do we keep pushing that grain fill duration and that kernel weight aspect because there's a lot of yield um, left to be made on the back end of the season i think a lot of folks think you know we're at r4 r5 up and wash my hands you know i can mm -hmm. crops done you know we're close to black no that's not always the case there's still you know 40 30 40 percent kernel weight left to go even at that that period of time so if we get nutrient deficiencies or or disease coming in, you know, really late. Um, I think it can really harm some of that kernel weight. So, so managing it accordingly. Now, I don't think it's, you know, you should be putting nitrogen on at R4 and fungicides on at R5 uh, to do that because I think we saw that with R1 fungicides. They have the ability um, to control disease. I think in severe instances, um, some of those additional fungicides are needed, especially for tar spot. Um, but it's just managing that crop, like I said, the entire season. You have to manage it the entire season, manage that factory, um, and so we can can push it on the back of the season. Even some of our trials, we were combining 
um, you know, 20% moisture and that crop was pretty green uh, when we were running through that and that some of our fields that we were pushing 300 bushel. That's that's where we were seeing it. And it was, I mean, I have pictures. It was, I mean, even riding the combine, it's like, man, look at how much green that, that corn plant still has. Uh, but the moisture was down. Um, so that was always a big concern we get is, well, what about if I'm at 28% or, you know, having trouble harvest? You know, we didn't really see stark moisture differences, maybe a half point moisture more, um, but that moisture was down, but the plant greenness was was still there. And I think that, that helped extend that that grainful duration and that yield on the back end of the season. Yeah. Do you think that there's a big genetic component uh, to this idea of the late season kernel weight? Or are we going to bounce up to a point where a particular hybrid or certain lines maybe can't get beyond a certain level? Or do you think we're a long way from that at this point, that there's still a lot of management that can go into that that yeah. before we would ever bounce up against that kind of limitation? Well, I think it's it's definitely a, a genetic aspect. I think it's a combination of the management and the genetics. Um, I know, um, you know, Jason DeBrine uh, did a big study uh, with Corteva and looking at the the differences and in, in eras of hybrids of Corteva from or pioneer hybrids for a long period of time. And, and one of the big things they found, not only his research but other research trials at universities, is that they found hybrids today compared to hybrids in the past have a longer linear grain fill duration mm -hmm. so there is a genetic aspect so throughout the breeding um, the breeding of the hybrids have helped extend that that you know we always look at you know why do hybrids now yield more than hybrids in the past and a lot of it is the traits and the stress tolerance and, and everything but you, you look at the physiology um, aspects they found that um, you know some of jason's work is that you know the kernel number has kind of plateaued um, really in the I would say mid to late 90s with hybrids, but the kernel weight and the grain filtration still kind of going up. Um, so I think there's still um, some genetic aspects to keep pushing that some and, and then combining it with some of these management practices uh, to push it. You know, I think it's a, you know, genetic aspect. I think it's some, you know, really pinpointing your hybrid maturity in the environment, you know, truly picking your hybrid and then having that that management aspect whether it be nutrients disease i think disease especially um to keep pushing that that envelope um as well um, that that all checks out i don't i don't want to be redundant here for the sake of uh, the conversation but i totally subscribe to the idea of you know managing those last 30 45 60 days of the corn plants life that, that that's how we did things in Nebraska in an irrigated environment where you have the opportunity to you know put some stuff through the pivot and you know maintain that plant health but Bob Little um, you know some of these folks in, in the state of Indiana that kind of push the envelope when it comes to, to yields and, and contest type corn it's they always say if it can look like silage when you're going to harvest it for grain, then you know you've got a big yield coming. And so I think, Dan, as your as your program continues to explore those components of yield, especially late in the growing season, that's going to be a, a big opportunity for uh, you know Indiana farmers to learn from your work. So. Yeah. Um, I, I know we've had a great conversation on 22 and what we learned. Maybe a sneak preview as you're writing up uh, experimental designs for 23 so folks know yeah. what to expect the next time we visit. Yeah, I think, you know, we 
I would talk to you guys earlier, but you know, a blessing and a curse being an agronomist is that you kind of have your hand, you know, your your role is to kind of pull the whole system together. So, you know, I have a lot of collaborative products and projects, a lot of my hands and a lot of different aspects, you know, on top of this high yield management study where we also have a uh, another study kind of expanding upon it with the fertigation and the, the irrigation component um, on the back end of the season as well. So, you know, that's another question that we have. We're working on putting a, a pretty um, state-of-the-art system uh, here in West Lafayette um, to even push the envelope even more. You think about late season management with some of these nutrients and fertigation. Um, cover crops is a big one, uh, right? So that's, you know, cover crops is something I get asked about all the time. Um, I think with the push with, you know, carbon markets and, you know, the way things are going in terms of people paying attention to the environmental side. Um, I think that's something, you know, we're trying to understand, you know, in turn, I look at it from the corn side, you know, if you want cover crops to work and if you want people to adopt cover crops, you can't be taking, you know, large yield hits <laughs> on the corn. Um, you know, there's benefits, there's long-term benefits uh, from cover crops, but there's a lot of folks that rent ground, right? They they can't do these long-term, you know, they we want to look at it in that first, second year to try and negate some of these yield issues, especially in corn. You know, beans do really well behind uh, cover crops. Corn depends on the cover crop, you know, depends on how you management. There's a lot of different things you have to consider in terms of nitrogen management and, and stuff like that. So I think that's something uh, we really pinpoint to. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, we're getting a lot of uh, technology, you know, me being new, I, I kind of push the envelope of, hey, let's get a new planter, let's get some new tractors, let's get this this technology side. So, um, you know, planter technologies is, is a big one for me, uh, working with some of the engineers here at Purdue. Um, you know, closing wheels, right? Hydraulic downforce, um, you know, variable downforce, um, you know, variable seating rates, um, you know, all the different starters, all those different systems, you know, getting to the level in our research to the point where this is what farmers are using and maybe push that a little bit more um, on the planter technology side. You know, I enjoy equipment, right? That's that's always something I, I enjoy looking at. And there's so much, you know, technology on the planter side that we're, we're paying attention to. Uh, we had a closing wheel study this year going to expand that next year. We're actually going to put sensors um, right above the closing wheel, uh, working with an engineer where they're going to, you know, put sensors right over the furrow. So it'll basically track exactly how well these closing wheels are, are huh. closing the furrow. Um, we're trying to figure out a way to maybe we can figure out a way to do really kind of look at compaction or sidewall right. issues from those closing wheels. So, you know, Purdue is heavy engineering. So uh, we do a lot of work with the engineers to to put different sensors and look at things a different way um, as well. Um, a lot of different trials with with different companies, um, stuff like that. Um, the, the high yield study we're going to um, do again. I think we may have another location or two this next year, uh, so we'll be able to get get quite a bit more data uh, out of that. What also um, do have some trials um, in Northwest Indiana. Um, we're uh, working with you all with different uh, pioneer hybrids and planning dates um, to look at. You know, in, in terms of tar spot management, can we maybe manipulate our hybrid maturity? Can we manipulate our planning date? And, and mm -hmm. how does that affect fungicide response? And how does that impact? affect when the tar spots coming in at certain growth stages um, as well. So um, yeah, those are kind of the, the big trials. And then I spoke to you guys earlier. I just put in a grant for the, the biological space, right? That is, that's a big topic. 
um, the amount of investment, you know, from Corteva, from other companies that is going into these products is, is really unbelievable. Um, and, you know, I do a lot of extension around the state, um, talk to a lot of farmers. And if I had one thing I could write on my whiteboard that I get asked about the most, it's biologicals. Um, you think about the nitrogen ones, you know, mm -hmm. Pioneer, Corteva has Utricia, and you think about Pivot and all these different, Invita. Um, there's... A lot of them are new, newer, you know, there's yep. needs to be a lot of research, more research done on them. Um, so a lot of understanding. So we're going to work with some of our soil microbiologists to, to really hone in on and how these products are working, how well they're working, you know, looking at them across different nitrogen rates, across many different environments on farm locations um, to really, really test them well and to, to get some educational material uh, for some folks because I get a lot of a lot of farmers just saying, you know, I get all these microbi, you know, these biologicals being offered to me, marketed to me. I don't understand any of them. I don't which ones work, which ones don't work. I don't, you know, it's right. it's, it's pretty fascinating just how much I get asked about them. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's something that's not going away um, in terms of the level of investment. Um, I think there's there's a lot we still don't know. I think there's a lot that these products can continue to get better uh, as we move to the future. Um, so that's that's going to be a big trial. Uh, we're going to kind of pilot it uh, this next year, uh, but really expand upon it uh, moving in the future. So um, yeah, a lot of different trials, a lot of different things. You know, I, I like looking at a lot of different things. I like having you know a lot of different trials across a lot of different environments. Um, if you have some popcorn farmers um, that listen to this podcast, I have a pretty extensive popcorn trial uh, this year. Okay. So that's something that uh, Purdue on the agronomy side hasn't really touched um, and ever. <laughs> um, so I had some some popcorn folks approach me about you know going back to come to some of the agronomic basis basics with popcorn, um, nitrogen. Um, you know, looking at nitrogen rate, had a lot of farmers say, you know, we kind of have a pretty good idea what our end rates in popcorn should be, but we kind of wing it <laughs> as well. Yeah, they typically are 15 to 20 percent lower. Um, so, but really trying to understand that. So we have about four or five farmers on board uh, with that project uh, to really hone in on the nitrogen recommendations and looking at nitrogen response in popcorn um, as well. So I think that's pretty exciting. I think we're excited to maybe get some samples at the end of the end of the year um, as well. Uh, so we're going to take it all the way through the to the popping side. Um, so that's a that's a new space for me um, is getting into the popcorn realm. Um, but excited to, to learn about that. So that's another big project uh, we have this year. So a lot of different topics. You know, I always, I'm always listening to what you all have to say, what comments I'm getting from farmers. You know, a lot of, you know, I rely on a lot of you guys in the industry side too to, to fill me in. And, you know, we try to tailor our research to, to what people are asking. What, what do people want to know? What are the challenges they have? And how do we, we address that? Um, so I think that's, that's important moving forward. No, that's great, Dan. I uh, I know we expressed this when you kind of gave us the sneak preview of some of your trial work, but Brian and I, both of our faces lit up when you said you were going to take on a, a study in the space of biologicals. And we've, uh, as as a you know pioneer, we we as a seed brand don't really have any affinity for a biological or another. But in the cynical world that we're you know we work with Cortev, obviously folks wonder if we're peddling something in that space. And so we are very much welcoming you 
as the uh, as the arbiter of uh, good information and research to help, I guess, bring some reputable information to uh, to biologicals and uh, yeah. you know all yeah, they probably. have to offer. Maybe they they don't have that they're promising to have, and and kind of getting some certainty and and taking some bias out of the equation. So on yeah. behalf of all the agronomists across the state of Indiana that also get inundated with that question, we thank you. Yeah, and I, I would say too, uh, Sean Castile, who's a soybean agronomist, has we're kind of co-doing these. So he has he's going to have a large soybean biological trial as well. So it won't be just corn. So we're we're tackling it from from both ends um, as well. So. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, Brian, I know you and I could visit with uh, Dan Quinn here for hours and hours, but also know that he's as busy as we are between crop shops and winter meetings and things of that nature. So anything we didn't have a chance to visit with him about that you you wanted to touch on today? Not that I can think of. I just think that it's really interesting, as I mentioned, everything that Dan talked to us about in his high yield study, Carl, really goes back to plant health. And I know you and I, we talk a lot about that when we're out with growers and trying to manage that. And so that just, I think, tells us that keeping that late season intactness in in mind as we do all of our management. And I, I agree with Dan 100%. We have to manage our crop all the way till the day we harvest it. And even in some respects after that, if you think about grain handling and everything else that goes into that. And so I just pr appreciate Dan's research helping maybe add some credence to some of the things that not just pioneer agronomists, but what a lot of folks who are in the agronomy space across Indiana tell our customers, um, having Dan back us up on that research has been incredibly helpful. I feel like as we've talked to our customers here recently. Yeah. Absolutely. And, I, and I would put out too that, you know, a lot of the, so I'm in the process hopefully this week or next to put our research book together. So I talk about all these different trials. Um, we are, uh, actually going to have a physical copy of a book, but also have that on my website, uh, the kernel.info, which is my website. Um, so hopefully in the next week or two, uh, we're working on, you know, putting, pulling that all together uh, this week. So, um, you know, I probably left out some of my trials. You know, we have so many across the state. Um, I try to keep track of them all, um, but we will have a nice, nice research book, um, you know, and talk about the different planting dates, maturities, you know, we had some seed depth trials with different hybrids. So all those different things are going to be in that research book so people can look at it. Um, that's something we're going to do every single year. Um, so Great. we can hand those out and, and people can see, you know, okay, what we did this year, what were those results? So I think that's that's really important too. Excellent. Well, uh, folks, uh, stay tuned for uh, a copy of that publication. Uh, like Dan said, that'll be found online at thekernel.info. Uh, Dan, for folks that uh, want to keep up with all things in your world, uh, I know you're fairly active on Twitter. Uh, what's your handle so they can uh, keep yeah. up with the latest and greatest? Yeah, Purdue Corn uh, is my Twitter. Um, it's just another avenue for us to to push out what we're seeing and and you know I've had a lot of farmers reach out to me on on Twitter. You know, DM me with questions. You know, I always appreciate that. Uh, my website, you know, our our Purdue Crop Chat podcast too. So not only this podcast, but the Purdue Crop Chat podcast is more prevalent in the growing season. Where where Sean and I do it about every couple weeks during the growing season. So uh, you can find that podcast anywhere. Um, but yeah, just, you know, look up my information. If you want to know more, um, you know, give me a call, shoot me an email. Um, I have farmers reach out to me all the time. Hey, can I see one of those research reports that you did? Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's, let's send that, send that on to you. Or if I have any, can answer any questions you have. I'm always happy to do that. 
Excellent. Well, Dan, we thank you for your time. Uh, Brian, as uh, folks want to follow along in Northeast Indiana and all things in Brian Trader's world, how may they do so? Absolutely. I want to put a plug in for Dan's website. If you don't have it bookmarked, you should. There's a lot of great links on that. But if you can want to get a hold of me, you can do that on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. And you, Carl? And if you want to see what's happening in Northwest Indiana, you can follow along on Twitter at Cjorn and on Facebook at Cjorn Agronomy. Uh, with that, we'd like to once again thank uh, Dr. Dan Quinn for joining the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. Always a treat when we get to have a visit with him and really enjoyed the debrief of what he learned in 2022 and what we have to look forward to in 2023. So until next time, hope you all are safe uh, and warm, and uh, we will see you here in just a little while. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.